welcome listeners to the editor's desk, the first things podcast, looking at what we've got in the latest issues of First Things Magazine. I'm Rusty Reno, and I'd like to thank, before I introduce Carl Truman, our guest, I'd like to thank the Center for Autism Assertiveness and Social Skills Counseling and Coaching Services, who's sponsoring this podcast. More info can be found at theautismexpert.com. So welcome, Carl Truman. It's great to be here, Rusty. Thanks for having me on. We're going to talk about the feature article you have in the November issue, The Failure of Intellectual Elites. Thanks for doing it for us. I um, was, it was a pleasure to be reminded of Frederick Schleiermacher's theology. I, <laughs> I think I was a... I was a um, smitten by Schleiermacher when I was about nineteen or twenty years old. So he he was one of my first theological loves. Although he's a I powerful thought... writer. He's a powerful <laughs> writer. That's certainly true. Well, but you, the role he plays in in your article is as the paradigmatic figure who responds to the cultural and intellectual pressure against Christianity in the modern era by, if you will, co-opting the themes of the critics themselves and then reinterpreting Christianity as an actually a fulfillment um, of the culture despisers' most earnest hopes and desires rather than being contrary to it. Yes, I think he represents a uh a perennial temptation that's that's not in itself entirely bad. I think that Christians always want to try to make the Christian faith attractive to outsiders. We have an evangelistic duty to present the faith to those outside, those who are skeptical. So Schleiermacher's motivation, one might say, in in disemboweling the faith as he does in those speeches <laughs> is is a good one on the level of he's he's doing that which the new testament wants us to do and that is make the faith reach out to those outside of the church it's the way he does it of course um twofold criticism i would have of him on that front one he does it by essentially paring away all of the things that the unbelievers he's addressing despise and it's what unbelievers do, of course. They despise certain aspects of the, the Christian gospel. So in taking those things away, you, you actually disembowel the gospel. You don't uh, preserve it. And secondly, I think he panders to an intellectual vision of Christianity that is not that of the New Testament. His target audience are the cultural elite. And not those lesser down the uh, lower down the totem pole. I think that too is is mm. an error on his part. Paul in First Corinthians chapter one makes it clear that the gospels are everyone, but perhaps especially for the weak and the poor and the despised of this world. Your the thrust of your essay is that the this pattern, let's call it, um, there's a pattern of response to pressure. Uh, upon Christianity in the modern era as it's pushed to the margins. One, one side is to rage and shake shake the fist. And the other pattern is the Schleiermacherian one of trying to adjust Christianity to 
conform to the expectations and beliefs of the culture despisers. In your judgment, we're in that cycle again, it seems to me, right? Yes, I think we can see those two phenomena manifesting themselves in American culture at this moment. On the one hand, we have uh, a very... I, I don't know how one wants to characterize them, but sometimes it's, it's called Christian nationalism, uh, a, a sort of radical resentment of what's going on in our culture that manifests itself in rather angry fashion. I suppose the January the 6th riots would be the evidence that is typically brought forward for that. And certainly within evangelicalism, I think what you have in America is a, a group of people who feel they own the country and that the country is now being stolen from them. That's the feeling. How true that is is another matter. And that generates feelings of anger, resentment, and a desire to fight fire with fire. On the other hand, I think we have had in America uh, an intellectual Christian elite for a long time who have believe that they can hold their own with secular elites who believe that they can have their their gospel cake and eat it too in terms of the intellectual company they keep. And what we're seeing on the other side of the equation is, is these groups, I would say, focusing on areas where they feel able to stand shoulder to shoulder with the emerging progressive consensus among the leadership mm-hmm. class in this country, but doing so at the expense minimally of silence on other key issues that Christians should be concerned about. And the the ones I pick on in in the paper, in the in the article, I say, you know, we we talk about race, but you can't separate talk about race really from abortion and LBGTQ issues because they're all part of the same complex, I think. And it's interesting The Rainbow Coalition, as they say. Yeah, they're they're all interconnected. And when some Christian leaders simply focus on the race issue, it raises questions for me about, well, why aren't they speaking up on these other issues as well? There is a pattern in American religious culture. Before before this podcast, I sat down and I tried to think through Protestant American history, and I came up with some interesting parallels. William Ellery Channing the leader of American Unitarianism. He took his first Boston pulpit in 1803. Meanwhile, the Cane Ridge Revival was in 1801. So two different responses to the kind of pressure that ultimately disintegrated the um, the older Congregationalist Calvinist um, synthesis. And then I looked, Walter Rauschenbusch, Christianity and the Social Gospel, published in 1907, Ah, The Fundamentals, the series of tracks published and launched in 1907, I think, actually. And then we see Riverside Church, you know, was completed in 1930, Harry Emerson Fosdick's pulpit, you know, one of the liberal progressive voices of the early 20th century. Um, J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism published only a few years before. And then the National Council of Churches moved into its new building, the so-called God Box, on Riverside Drive in 1952, and Christianity Today was founded in 1956. And so it is a kind of regular pattern that we're seeing here as Protestant Christianity splits at various junctures into these two camps, one, one that finds a way to incorporate the latest 
challenges of the secular culture despisers, and the other that, as you say, it ranges from fist shaking to, um, you know, I, I wouldn't call Jay Gresham Machen a fist shaking rabble rouser, but he was a pretty stiff spined uh, person in resistance to that tendency. So you, you talk about how this pattern repeated again in the 1990s. Um, and so, you know, that's the, I guess that's people would often look back to the 90s as the time when evangelicals came of age. Yes. And of course, at the heart of that are the, the, the figures of Mark Knoll and George Marsden, both of whom are outstanding historians and have made tremendous contributions to the academic study of uh, modern American history. George Marsden produced the definitive biography of Jonathan Edwards, Mark Knoll's America's God is a classic study of uh, American religion and, and is likely to remain so, certainly for my lifetime, I think. But allied to, to their, their academic endeavors, they also reflected at great length on, on what it would mean for, for Christians to have a mind. What would it mean for a Christian to be part of the academy? And I think one could boil down their position to the reason why American Christianity was was losing the academy as they saw it or was being marginalized was its commitment to incorrect, I know you banned me from using this word in the magazine, but I would say incorrect epistemologies uh, and uh, incorrect <laughs> to a lack of, of, of really good, sound, scholarly academic method. And I think there's much truth in that argument uh, hmm. that a lot of what passed for evangelical scholarship was just not very scholarly. Uh, and they issued this clarion call in the 90s for uh, Christian academics to take both their faith and the canons of the academy seriously. And mm -hmm. I think it resonated. It, it certainly resonated with me in the early 1990s as a young academic. Uh, I think 30 years on, looking back, we, we realized that was, well, maybe that was a moment in history. But the problem, of course, of the repudiation of Christianity in the academy is not simply down to the fact that Christian academics weren't trained well in the methods of the academy. Christian academics actually hold certain positions that render themselves, that render them implausible or even deeply offensive within the academy. Uh, last year, I studied, I, I did the historical method course at Grove, and we looked at George Marsden's little book, The Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship. And I think it's in that book, he has an example of how, you know, you could be on faculty with a gay colleague and treat them with respect and decency and, and respect their scholarship and respect them as a human being. And there's no reason why a Christian shouldn't be able to flourish as an academic on such a, in such a faculty. I think today that I was interested, my students found that a completely implausible scenario. Mm. Their view was, if mm. you're working at a standard secular institution, or even many religious institutions in this country, and you're opposed to gay marriage, that's going to be seen as a moral defect that disqualifies you from, from holding an academic position. And Yeah, I think that it wouldn't really matter how diplomatic you were no. or how collegial you were, but simply to express doubts about the trajectory of the sexual revolution, I think, is now at this point completely disqualifying. Yeah. So you have to either, you, well, you have to either agree or be completely silent yeah. and somehow hide hide what you um, what you truly believe. So I guess one way I think of it when I was re um, reading your piece is that sort of faith and reason 
which of course, both for Catholics and Protestants, can and are in fact um, in harmony, has given way to faith and wokeness, which uh, you know, which cannot be reconciled. Yeah, and I think in, in the most extreme manifestations of wokeness, of course, the very idea of reason is being questioned as you know a racist construct, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that yeah, the 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 framework now is is no longer one dealing with method and knowledge; it's one dealing with morality. Uh, I've, I've had a bit of pushback on the article. Somebody you know, pointed out to me that there are a number of academics at mainstream institutions who uh, successfully hold on to their faith and operate as, as good academics. Professor Robert George Princeton would be one of those. But of course, he has tenure. And the question for me would be, will Princeton ever appoint another Robert George? It's not a question of who's there now with tenure. It's a question of who's getting appointed in the rising generation to fill these places. And I find it very hard to believe that an openly and clearly orthodox Christian would find it very easy to get a tenure track appointment anywhere other than a very conservative or a a very religious college. And it seems to me that even if it's the case, I mean, there are extraordinary individuals, both people with really very winsome personalities, Robbie George would be a good example, uh, or just sort of stunning intellectual uh, capabilities. But I, I, that doesn't change the thrust of your analysis, which is that, you know, in the Bertrand Russell, I call it the Bertrand Russell era. In the Bertrand Russell era, the argument against faith was that it was, if you'll permit me, the editor from contradicting himself, it's our epistemic defect uh, as men and women of faith that disqualifies us. But wow, that era is long gone. I'm very persuaded by your assessment that the the intellectual objections to Christianity have long ago given way to the moral objections, although you note that that's always been the case. Yes, and I... I cite Stephen Williams's uh, analysis of the Enlightenment, and, and Stephen makes the point there that the Enlightenment is often read primarily in, use that word again, epistemological terms, but uh, <laughs> but there was always an underlying moral dimension to it as well, and so you, you see that in in Kant's definition of Enlightenment, uh, where, you know, Enlightenment is is growing up, it's coming of age. Well, that's right. that's a point that thinking for yourself, thinking for yourself, that has implications of autonomy that have moral implications too. So it's always been there. I think we're just living in an era now where it's 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 more sharply accented than ever before. And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, for an AJ Eyre, religion is nonsense. It makes no logical sense. For the modern day postmodernist, religion is distasteful, disgusting, morally offensive, regardless of what the, the, the foundations, the intellectual foundations might be. You know, I was, um, last weekend, I was in Grand Rapids and George Marsden gave a short talk where he effectively conceded the point that the, the Bertrand Russell era, as I call it, is past. And he made the argument, and I thought there was something to it that Actually, Christian scholars might be might play an important role as actually defending the life of the mind in an era where everything has been being swept up into the great social justice imperatives. And I thought, wow, you know, there 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 might be something to that. And that's, I guess, and you mentioned 
the notion of James Davidson Hunter's notion of faithful presence. Uh, and, and so, so it's, I guess I want to um, sort of note that, right. It's not so much that you disagree. In fact, you note in your piece that you agreed in the 1990s, you found it quite helpful, that position that, that the point is, is that the, the context in which a person of faith pursues an academic vocation is really just so different now than it was when you and I both came into the academic world. Yes, I, 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 and I would resonate with, with your account there of uh, George Marsden's comment. We are seeing some interesting alliances develop across party lines, religiously speaking, in order to defend uh, the life of the mind. Uh, the book Cynical Theories, for example, that I think is a very helpful introduction to what's mm. going on relative to critical theory in the academy, is written by two non-Christians. I don't know them personally, but I'm told neither of them professes any religious faith. Uh, Abigail Schreier's work on transgenderism, I think, is extremely helpful and insightful. And I think she's a liberal Jewish woman, as far as I know. Uh, and, and I think what, what's being defended there is, is a basic commitment to a kind of humanist ideal in the true sense of the word, a commitment to the ideal of, of humanity. I'm reminded of uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand in his resistance to Hitler. One of the, uh, the men at the university he was closest to was a logical positivist. I can't remember his name, but... Uh, Rudolf Carnap. I don't think oh, it was yeah. Carnap. It might have been Schlick. I think the one who right. was murdered, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, mm. But it, it, it's interesting, von Hildebrand was very comfortable standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody who metaphysically he'd be on opposite sides to, but they were both committed to a liberal humanist kind of ideal when it came to education. And that's where I think that, as, you know, as George Marsden hinted at in that comment you, you just recounted there, I think that's where, where Christians can possibly find co-belligerence in our struggle because we believe in human nature. We believe in reason. We believe in the importance of the basic freedoms that were enshrined in the American Constitution. This is ground upon which we can stand and ground that neither neither side wants to see taken away at this particular point. Mm -hmm. Shifting gears, let, let me throw out, a, you know, you're a, a historian. Let me throw out an historical thesis because the thrust of your, your piece as you come to an end is that um, there is a kind of religious populism in the evangelical movement that's now increasingly at odds with the elite leadership of evangelical Christianity. And, you know, I gave you, I recounted the Walter Rausch and Bush versus Fundamentals, Riverside Church versus J. Gresham Machen, National Council of Churches versus Christianity Today. They all fit into a kind of matrix of mainline Protestantism versus evangelical or maybe call it conservative or fundamentalist Christianity. But my thesis is that mainline Protestantism in my generation has largely become moribund. And so the Christian, the Protestant Christian form, so to speak, is evangelical Christianity. It's the only game in town. And so I guess my thesis is that liberal Protestantism is reinventing itself within evangelical circles. And so this inevitable modern dynamic of which you'd outline at the beginning of your piece is 
manifesting itself in the evangelical world, as opposed to the evangelical world playing its role as the, the great no to the liberal Protestant concession. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right there. And I think a number of factors play into that. I think that a lot of evangelical Protestants don't have a firm, I mean, you don't think any Protestants have a firm ecclesiastical grounding. I know that, Rusty, but... Oh, no, no, I, I wouldn't say that. They just don't have the firmest. <laughs> a lot of evangelical Protestants don't have a sense of church history, don't have a sense of ecclesial identity, don't have commitment to a traditional confessional trajectory that provides some kind of point of stability and continuity with the past. And I think that renders them more vulnerable to social pressures, either to go along with them or to react excessively against them. So I think that plays into it. Secondly, I think we're seeing a rising generation. There is a certain degree of panic setting in, I think, among a lot of pastors about the rising generation, the nons, those who are drifting away from the church. And Mm. one thing I've heard behind the scenes on the race issue is we have to focus on this because we cannot speak to the LGBTQ issue in a way that our young people are going to find plausible. We have to speak to the race issue because then they will stand with us. You know, this is the, this is the point that society culture is training them to be interested in these social issues. And this is the one which we can use as the hook or the bait to keep them, keep them on board. So I think that that playing Uh, into it as well. But I think you're absolutely right. And of course, if you look at the history of Protestantism denominationally, typically what happens is liberal or mainline Protestantism arises within once orthodox denominations, and then you have a split. Now you're dealing with a more amorphous concept of evangelicalism. We're just seeing taking place in a more amorphous concept, what has historically taken place within more clearly defined denominations. You conclude with... um... It is a paradoxical words of consolation to our listeners. And one would think that to quote John 15, where Christ tells his disciples that uh, the world um, will hate them. Uh, you would think that that would be bad news, but I actually find it to be uh, words of consolation as in, well, duh. Yeah. Yes, of course, yeah. uh, the elite of our time are, you know, against us. Yeah. Um, this, it has always been so. <laughs> yes, and, and that sort of points to, I don't think I use this phrase in the article, but I would say underlying a lot of what the, uh, a lot, underlying a lot of our current tensions and troubles is a sort of problem or crisis in the Christian imagination. I think when you when you look at both right and left, if you want a better term, if you look at the Christian nationalists and you look at the the progressives, both of them, in a sense, think that society should belong to them. They both think that there should be this distinct and strong overlap between Christianity and the way society is run. Uh, and that's an imaginative way of thinking about the church that I think is not borne out by the New Testament. The language of the New Testament is, as you quoted from the Gospel of John, the language of the world hating uh, us. Elsewhere, we have the language of sojourners and pilgrims. We're told that here we have no lasting city. And I think we need as Christians to grasp something of that kind of way of imagining ourselves within the world in order to 
I don't say to make sense of what's going on there, but at least not to be overly disturbed by what's going on. It's not something unexpected. This is what a, I think, a fair reading of the New Testament would lead us to believe could well be the experience of the church in any particular generation. So we shouldn't panic. Absolutely not. No need to panic at all. Just keep subscribing to First Things. That's what we need to do. (laughs) Oh, very good. I like that. And that's just a delightful way to end our conversation. So, dear listeners, please subscribe to First Things and read Carl Truman's article on the November issue of First Things. Thank you, Carl, for your time. Thanks for having me on, Rusty.